what you do with a fixed bid is that you take on all the risk, which I think is incumbent on someone who's selling themselves as an expert to take on the risk. The paint store, they don't know how to communicate design spec for a website. You know, what do they know about that? They're, they're not experts at this. We are. So we should take on the risk, in my opinion. But we should be rewarded for taking on that risk by making increased profits. Hey, welcome back to the Business of Freelancing podcast, where we help you get better clients, make more money, and live a happier and a healthier life freelancing. I'm your host, Brennan Dunn, and I am here today to announce officially that the conference, the Double Your Freelancing conference, is a go. I recently emailed my newsletter to just try to figure out exactly really two things. Timing-wise, what would be best? I asked uh, whether mid-September or early November would be best. Um, Month of October, my sister's getting married and we've got a family trip. So that month is kind of out of the picture for me at least. And uh, I heard back from about 220 people who want to go, who want to attend. And we're probably going to have the seat limit be, I need to really work it out with the venue, but we're hoping for 150 to 200 people um, in attendance at the event. It's going to be in Norfolk, Virginia, which is my hometown. And it's going to be, I'm pencil, I've penciled in September 17th and 18th. And it's going to be great. I mean, we've got already confirmed, we've got people like, uh, we've got Nathan Berry, we have Steli Efti, we have Kurt Elster, we have Sarah Bray, we have Brian Cassell, Philip Morgan, Kai Davis, Ed Gandia. Uh, we're probably going to get Jonathan Stark too. We've got a great conference. It's just going to be focused on the business side of freelancing. So it's no technology, no like, you know, how to use WordPress or how to, you know, any of that stuff. It's just going to be focused exclusively on business and the business of freelancing. So if you are interested and you haven't already joined the early bird uh, registration list, it's free to join. It's just that really the people who are going to get first notice of, of the event when it opens up for registration, you can go to doubleyourfreelancing.com slash conference. And amazingly, I've been able to get all that set up because I've brought on some people to help me. This whole last few weeks has just been, for me at least, between going to microconf and then literally the week after I get a call about my grandmother, her health going into decline and being put in hospice. So I had to fly down to Florida. Unfortunately, she passed away last Friday, and now I'm leaving for Florida again tomorrow for the funeral. So I was hoping that this would be a relatively tame, travel-free beginning of the growing season here in Virginia. You know, we, we do a lot of gardening and I wanted to, I want to get everything in the ground, but it seems uh, life is throwing everything at me. But the good news is we've got great people supporting these efforts and getting this conference off the ground, getting the, basically handling my customer support, handling everything. I'm, I'm really, really blessed that I've got a great infrastructure in place along with helping me with things like this podcast. So today I spoke with Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is a guy who his focus is on mobile. So he's he's a mobile consultant, but he has a, a lot of experience both in growing an agency and also in understanding really implicitly value-based pricing and value-based fees. So 
why I wanted to bring him on was I, I read an article of his called why well, I always forget the name. It's something like why hourly billing is bad. You know, a lot of it real, really, really rung true to me. And that actually, if you're, if you read my blog the other day, I published an article on the difference between value-based pricing and value-based anchoring. Cause I still bill for time depending on the type of project and I know Jonathan doesn't. So I wanted to bring him on just so we could kind of try to see if, if are we really on the same page or is maybe they're, I just wanted to really just dig in and, and that we did. So without any further ado, here is Jonathan. Hey everyone, I'm here with Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is uh, actually one of the guys in this little Slack room that uh, Philip Kai, a lot of the people that you've heard on the podcast are from, but uh, Jonathan is is an awesome guy. He's actually, I think you're what, a new host on the Freelancer Show, right? Yes, the, that's correct. Yeah, the thing Chuck has. I think, well, your focus is, I mean, your consulting focus is mobile, but as a whole, you have a lot of, a lot of experience and advice in the world of consulting and freelancing. So yeah, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I think the first article I ever read of yours was titled something like why you should ditch hourly billing or something. And yeah, why, um, why hourly billing is nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you want to give me like a, a 30 second recap of that and then we can just dive into a lot of the themes that you brought up in that article? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I was managing a small firm. We had about 15, 10 or 15 developers would go up and down and I, um, uh, we were going through a rough patch cash flow wise and, you know, we made that list that all owners eventually have to make, which is who we're going to lay off if we have to. And fortunately we never had to, but going through that process, uh, made me realize that hourly billing was crazy because, um, I, we were going to have to lay off our best guy because he worked the fastest and he cost the most. <laughs> so he made us the least amount of money. Right. And I was like, we, I was, I was like, I thought about it for at least a week before the light bulb went on and I was like, oh, Wow because we're billing by the hour and uh, and once i once that light bulb went on my it was like an epiphany uh, all of a sudden i realized that almost every problem that we that i had to deal with personally as the vp um you know chasing people for hours and uh, constant invoicing and fighting about hours with customers and i was all all of these problems came from this sort of arbitrary measurement that we were using to bill people did you just basically say, you know, from now on, we're just going to fix price all of our projects and um, hopefully we'll be able to get them done in such a way and also that the client will approve them in such a way that we are, you know, remain consistently profitable. Is that kind of what you ended up doing or? That's what I wanted to do. I went to the, I wasn't, I wasn't the owner. I was the VP. So I went to the, I went to the owner. Yeah. And I, I sort of made the case and he, you know, rationally, he understood what I was talking about. And I think he even agreed that I was right, but he couldn't see a way to transition to it. And I, I just couldn't go back to billing by the hour after I had the realization. So we just went our separate ways and I started my own firm from scratch. And since I was starting it from scratch, it was really easy for me to set it up from top to bottom in a, a value-based fixed bid style, which, which granted it is hard to transition an existing firm from hourly to um, a value-based approach. Did, were you able to transition existing customers or did you just start with new projects on, on a fixed approach? I did a couple of different things. Um, first, I had a couple of customers that 
um, I brought over from the other firm, which we did a revenue share, and I continued to uh, work with them the old way, which was by the hour. Uh, so those, and, and one of them was a particularly long project. So that was sort of my uh, baseline, cover my bills, um, you know, one foot in the old style. And all of the new work that I would do, I was trying to attract customers based on this value proposition, which was that when you hired me, you knew how much it was going to cost before you pulled the trigger. You didn't have to watch the clock. Uh, There's no change requests, no upsells, no nickel and diming, nothing. So I could, once I was attracting new customers that knew that out of the gate, then, you know, I could, I could actually beat people who were making estimates that were half of my quote, but carried a lot of risk where mine didn't carry a lot of risk. So the projects you were working on, I mean, were they multi-month large projects or were they pretty concise? They, I tried to keep them as concise as possible so I didn't risk massive scope creep. Right. Um, so a, a typical project would start at 5,000 and go maybe as high as 25,000 normally, but every once in a while I get a whale and uh, I probably uh, break those down a little bit differently. Like most of those, I, um, in retrospect, I can say that actually what I did was a retainer, a monthly retainer for those, although I didn't realize that's what I was doing at the time. Got it. Just just a quick little background on some of the times I've done fixed. I, When I started my agency, we only did hourly because to me, it was the kind of clearest way to come up with a, a bottom line, right? Like this is what I, because back, back then, actually, when I started the agency, I was paying people by the hour. So I'd bill X and I'd pay them a percentage of X, which to me at least made sense, right? So um, but I can see, you know, as we switch to more of the employment model where I was paying my team a, a set salary, regardless of whether or not they're on the bench or actually billing, you know, that that's actually ultimately when we move to weekly, which is, I mean, I've talked before about why, like, at least I, I'm in complete agreement on ditching hourly as a u- unit of measure, I guess, for for billing. But the problem that I always had was we'd have some clients who we wanted the project, we wanted the work, and they weren't really too amenable to the idea of like an open-ended budget, right? Like they wanted to be able to say, I will pay you 50 grand and this is what I'll get. And the the issue we ran into there, and again, this was early on when I was, I think, a little more naive about like... Um, assumption making and everything else and you know they would they would describe the website or the application that they need built and i would have in my head a picture of what that meant and then at the 11th hour the project we realized actually oops they actually wanted something a little more complex than what we were thinking and uh we we ended up in this kind of like um almost like a free buffet sort of thing right like an all-you-can-eat buffet type of problem where some of these projects just dragged on almost indefinitely because the client never, the client and us never got to a point where we could agree upon, you know, what actually, what a complete system looked like. And in retrospect, I mean, there's so many things I could have done in terms of, um, you know, really just properly scoping out what each and every feature meant. But um, I I think nowadays the risk that I'd have in in doing a fixed project, a fixed multi-month project would be would be less. But one of the things we did, and I'd love to hear your opinions on this, is um, are you familiar with the, the consultancy A-Flight? They're up in Chicago? Mm-mm, no. Okay, so that's actually um, Bob Martin. Uncle Bob works for them. And 
one of the things I learned from one of the principals there was the way they bill, which is fixed feature. So what they do is they often have projects that are six months, 12 months long, and it's it's really hard to set a fixed price off of something that'll take a year to build. So what they started doing was breaking up a massive project like that into like two to three week feature prices, I guess, where they break down, let's say they're going to add a new user dashboard to the system. They would treat that as a separate project. They would go through the whole estimating process, get sign off and everything else. And that that at least mitigated a lot of the risk of trying to imagine like, you know, before it's built, what would a thing that'll take 12 months to actually build? What will that, how complex is that really? So just kind of, it made it a little easier for them and they didn't risk going, you know, running into this, you know, problem of trying to project what a, a year long project might look like in terms of complexity. Mm. I mean, basically what we're talking about is scope creep or, or just understanding the scope in the first place. Right. And that is the fear that everyone has when they hear, you know, when when consultants here or developers here fix bid, they freak out because they're like, I could lose money. And I have a, a bunch of responses to that. One, I totally agree with the idea of breaking it down. Uh, I've never broken it down based on features, but it's super important to try and break the project into small enough chunks that no single chunk is going to put you out of business um, if it went horribly wrong. Um, the other thing is that when something does go horribly wrong, it's actually not that horrible because, in, I mean, unless it's, unless you're just like wildly off the mark, because what really ends up happening is your effective rate just goes down. You don't, it's not like you are literally losing money. You're still getting the money. You're or you could just, lose, if you have employees, you could be losing money. Well, your costs are going up. So right. your, your costs continue to go up. The price stays the same. The value to the customer stays the same. So the customer's perfectly happy. The thing that happens when you go over an hourly estimate, because you give somebody an estimate, oh, I think it's going to be, you know, 500 hours, $200 an hour. They they multiply that out. And to them, that's the price. That's what they're going to pay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And right. and when you hit that number and you, you're, you know, 90% done, 90% to go. <laughs> and they're like, uh, wait a second. You said that it was going to be, you know, $100,000. And you're like, well, that was just an estimate. You know, right, right now, all of a sudden they're there. The price is going up. The cost to them is going up. And it, and as soon as it exceeds the value that they had in their mind, they're going to start freaking out. And then they're going to start questioning your hours. Now you've got all this administrative back and forth. Your life turns into a, a nightmare. So the cool part about going over on a fixed bid is that your life doesn't turn into a nightmare. That's one thing. The other thing you said is that uh, if you do have employees, you could technically be losing money. But I would argue that. Um, you can look at that a lot of different ways. One is that you shouldn't just have one client. You're probably spreading this risk across a bunch of clients. So it's not as simple as just saying, oh, you know, I, I paid Joe more than he made this month on this one project. Um, the other thing is that if you hadn't taken on that project, you, Joe might've just been sitting there doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So the utilization, you would have lost the money anyway. So, um, so it's a little bit more complicated but I will admit that I purposely never had employees and I will never have employees because it complicates the complicates the whole thing so much. It does get very complicated. And I did not like the I did not like um, when I was managing the firm and worrying about paying people's salaries so they could pay their mortgage. I didn't like that feeling. So 
um, if I was going to go out on my own and take this risk, because it was new for me at the time, I was definitely not going to hire anyone. And, and then I, you know, it's like, well, eventually I'm like, oh, maybe eventually I'll hire people to grow the firm. But I found that I just, I just got, uh, grew the firm by getting bigger and bigger customers who got bigger and bigger value out of the, the work I was doing. So I could just charge more and more money. And since it wasn't tied to my hourly rate or some arbitrary hourly rate, the sky was the limit instead of having this artificial ceiling on, you know, I've got 40 hours a week and no one's going to pay a thousand dollars an hour. That's absurd. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, I ended up growing the firm that way and I dodged the bullet of what to do with, um, how to come up with a cost based on employees or that sort of thing. So if you were paying contractors, did you pay them ultimately hourly or did you give them like a, sh- a share percentage of the total project fee? I've never come across a freelancer who was willing to give me a fixed bid. Right. So, so you paid them hourly. Right. But, but, and, and people listening to this are like, probably think that sounds so risky, but the reason it sounds risky is because you're imagining a very low fee. So you're, cause with an estimate, you're always cutting it really close. You're trying to deliver the lowest number because you're probably up against other people and they're probably going to judge you based on the bottom line. And if you position yourself in a way that you're the expert in the space, you can charge a premium. And since you're taking on the risk, you can charge a premium. And you know, like as a, just as a joke, uh, I was having a phone call with somebody, they had a, a, what was clearly at least a 12 month long project. And we were trying to figure out how we were going to scope it and, and how much, you know, like well, what to do because it was so large and we couldn't see a way to break it down. I just jokingly said, well, I can do anything for 200 grand a year. And they said, all right. And just agreed to that. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I knew, I knew I could do it in a year. And yeah. I was like, if yeah. it, if it takes me, even if it takes me two years, I'm still making a great salary right. and it, it wasn't even full time. So, you know, I, I had other gigs as well. So if you, if the, if the price that you set is high enough, you don't, you'll be, you'll happily hire people at a hundred bucks an hour to help you with it because you've got a lot of money to play with. Right. Okay. So to play devil's advocate, the two, the two things I would caution would be, first off, you need to be really, really good at estimating not only complexity, but also complexity applied to the abilities of whoever's ultimately going to be doing the work. So if you're subbing work out to somebody, you know, you know, your efficiency, but that doesn't, it's not like a universal standard, right? Like, you Mm -hmm. know, people take different amounts of time to do different things. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, where I mostly jaded from this is, and let me give you this as an example would be, I think it ultimately, the problem that I had boiled down to false assumptions. So we had one project in particular that needed uh, group functionality. And in my mind, I, I immediately, and, and this was a mistake of mine, but I immediately got, I, I thought technically, okay, so they have users and they have groups and we need a way to have a button that literally creates a join record be- between the two, right? So mm-hmm. now that user's in that group. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we sold. We sold that and we thought that. And then ultimately, as we got into, when we developed that, And again, so much of this has to do with correct assumptions and correct expectations. But as we got into that, the problem that we noticed was they were rejecting our work saying, well, we wanted it to kind of be like LinkedIn, where there's like moderation and, you know, if you apply to join a group, 
the group owner has a list of applicants and then they can selectively, you know, private message back and forth between them and the, you know, I mean, there was all this stuff. They wanted a Porsche, but we sold a Camry. Mm. And so whose fault was that, though? Well, it, it was ultimately our fault in that we didn't spend enough time scoping. But what what I've seen happen, and th- this is one of the reasons I'm a huge advocate of selling something like a paid estimation session. Yes. You know, what I call like a road mapping session. I do this. We didn't do that. We wanted the project, but we weren't going to spend the two days it needed to really scope out that project because we didn't charge for that. Right. Mm-hmm. So we went ahead and because we were dealing with a lot, a pretty high estimate volume, mm-hmm. we wanted just to, you know, there's that high of, of getting the work, right? Like if, <laughs> if you sell a $60,000 project, let's say you're happy up until that 11th hour where you're realizing, you know, holy crap, this is a $120,000 project. And right, which happens a lot. Yeah, right. That's why I think for people who are blindly issuing out quotes that are like best guesses where they don't really know exactly what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You can, you can hurt yourself by just saying, yeah, you need, you need a Facebook clone. I'll build you a Facebook clone 50 grand. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that it's, you know, your estimate is way off. Their assumption is different than yours. I mean, I'm, I'm all for fixed pricing when it comes to really having a detailed idea of the scope but for a lot of big projects especially big projects you know you can't take at face value what what the potential client is saying and put together a proposal based off that until you really dig into and say well let's talk about functionality of grouping like group management like what do you actually mean by that right and then come up with an estimate based off that yeah i mean for a project like that god i have so many (laughs) i know it's only a 20 minute show but um, one of the things that I think is really important that you touched on there is that billing by the hour and pre- presenting an estimate that you build weekly in arrears once the project starts allows people to start working before anybody knows what you're building. Right. Which is horrible. Right. Um, but it is common that everyone expects that they call up, hey, we, we heard you're great at this. Uh, what's your rate? When can you start? And um, I do the same thing. I'll I'll have for really big projects, I'll charge $5,000 for like a design. I usually call it like a design workshop mm-hmm. where we go through and I'll say, um, you know, we're going to go through, we're going to scope this whole thing out. At the end of the process, you're going to have a, a long PDF that you can either, you know, we'd like to bid on. We'll, you know, I'll do it. Or you could take to anybody else and it'll have wireframes. It'll have the whole thing be all done for you, like a nice neat package. You can go with anybody you want. Uh, so it's a portable thing. There's no lock-in. Right. And that's that's exactly what what we did. And I mean, as you probably know, no one ever really takes that elsewhere. Yeah, they always go. With yeah, you. they always go with you. So would you say then if you are going to set a flat fee that you owe it to yourself and you really owe it to the client to to sell something like that first? If it's big, I mean, oh, yeah, I, if I would, it's a one week project, argue, maybe not. But if you're I mean, starting, if, if you're just starting out with this, you should not do a fixed bid for a 12 month project. Right. Like if you should, when I'm counseling people about this and they say, well, how, you know, how am I going to make this transition? Because I think value based fees are an ideal, uh, but it's not something you just flip on. No, no. Because um, you will, you will effectively decrease the amount of money. You know, you'll decrease your profits so potentially severely, but you can increase them seriously uh, as well. So what you do is 
Uh, when a project comes in that you've basically done a million times before, it's going to, you know, it's going to take you about a week. Um, even if you're wrong to like hundred percent wrong, it'll take you two weeks, you know, so start off with really easy projects and, um, uh, also with customers, maybe that you've worked with before, you know, you communicate really well, you speak the same language, you, you, you know what they mean when they talk about a particular feature, you know how to get the right information out of them, that kind of thing. So you, because what you're going to do, what you do with a fixed bid is that you take on all the risk, which I think is incumbent on someone who's selling themselves as an expert uh, to take on the risk. The, you know, the, the paint store isn't, they don't know how to communicate design spec for a website. Right. You know, what do they know about that? The Montessori school down the street, they're, they're not experts at this. We are. So we should take on the risk, in my opinion. But we should be rewarded for taking on that risk by making increased profits. So um, start small, uh, start with people that you know you communicate well with, um, start with people you like, and, um, you know, and work your way up to bigger and bigger things. Let me ask you about change orders or modifications. Mm -hmm. um, just about every, I've never worked on a decently sized project that looked the same on the day it was kicked off as it did when it was delivered. I mean, there's inevitably changes that happen. Mm -hmm. So with something like this, what do you recommend in terms of, uh, you know, either the client decides or business needs necessitate that something needs to change, let's say midway through, mm -hmm. what's that look like? That gets into how, how I write a proposal, which is, uh, I prefer to write a proposal, uh, you know, focusing on outcomes, not deliverables. So I won't get into um, a big, you know, I've seen plenty of proposals that are like 50 page documents with, um, you Water know, spreadsheets and, yeah, and wireframe. Yeah. I do not do that. I would say, um, I was like, I will say something like, this is the outcome of the project. The thing that you, the reason why you need this done is because productivity is down. I will fix that. You do not get to tell me what color blue to use on the header. Um, you do not get to tell me how many screens there should be. I am going to increase your productivity. So basically you're, you're taking ownership of the scope. Mm -hmm. They have no, okay. So what if as the ultimate owners though, of that project, do you ever get pushback where they're like, well, you know, yes, this is, we agree that this is the outcome we're aiming for. We'd like it to work like this though. Uh, sometimes. And, um, and usually, so what I just described, the, the outcome based, approach is very, I mean, it's oversimplified. Like it would be, it would probably be a whole page of bullet points. Like these are the outcomes that you're going to mm -hmm. expect to achieve from the software. Right. They probably also will have come to me with a bunch of deliverables, um, that I will put in the proposal because if you don't do that, they'll feel like you didn't hear them. So I'll put the deliverables in, assuming that I agree that they will help to reach the goals, which is, um, typically the case or that they're irrelevant one way or the other. Um, but not, they're not going to hurt the goals. And I'll go through and we will have s traditional scope type conversations, but my goal in the scope conversations, the traditional scoping is that I'm going to try and be pushing through to them to get at the ultimate goal. And that's the thing we're going to measure. The success of the project is going to be measured based on the outcomes. Yep. Along the way, I'm going to find out a whole bunch of things about, you know, how they want the joins to happen between individuals and groups. So I will keep track of that stuff and I keep it in there and I do that to, um, when we get to a certain point and somebody says something like, um, oh, this is supposed to, this, we were expecting this to be more like LinkedIn. I would say there's two ways to go. 
if I agree that it was my fault, I'll just do it and, you know, therefore make uh, less money than I would have. Mm -hmm. And if I think that it was actually out of scope of anything that was ever discussed, I'll say that's a great idea. We should add that to version two and uh, we can quote that after version one's done. And on the, the rare occasion where someone's pushed back against that and they say, no, this whole project is going to be a failure if we don't do this thing. We, we didn't realize it. We know we didn't ask you about it at the beginning. But now that we're starting to see the application, we realize that what we should have asked you for. I have said to people, all right, if that's what you want to do, or it's like a side project or a side module that was never discussed, I'll say, okay, but we're not doing two projects at once. If you want to stop the existing project, I'll give you a quote for this new thing that you're bringing up. And we can do that. If that's truly the urgent one, then we can do that first. And then we can come back to the first project. And no one has ever taken me up on that. I think I've only had to put that out there once and the person didn't take me up on it because they were like, oh yeah, when you put it like that, the, the project one is actually more important. But there was this like sexy feature that they just felt like, oh, you know, maybe their competitor came out with a new sexy feature and now all of a sudden their hair's on fire that they have to have this new sexy thing. I just don't let them do it. It's, it's bad for them and it's bad for me. It, it's not even that it's bad for me. It's bad for them to be just acting all reactionary like that. If it's at all possible, I will prevent them from doing it. And you, you actually bring up a really good point in that with the, when focusing on the outcome, I mean, that actually enables you to have kind of like an unbiased judge of any, any additional scope creep that might come to the surface. Because what you can say, I mean, I've, I've had clients who we've designed, let's say a registration page for them and it, it achieves the goal in the way that we think is best for registering users. And then they get to play with it on staging and they're like, ah, eh, well, can we, can we do this instead? Can it be a wizard based thing instead of a single page form? And then, you know, I mean, if, if all you're doing is you're selling like a web application that has user management, let's say, Mm-hmm. then it's it's kind of hard to like it's hard to defend a request like that which is really a a useless request because it's kind of stalling you from hitting the goal yeah but I don't you, let them go there right but if you can say explain to me how doing a redesign will get us faster and cheaper to that goal or maybe not cheaper but fat better to the goal right yeah. at hand if you can make a very convincing case then we will mutually agree to do it but I don't see, I can't understand how that happens. And, and it's, I mean, you get clients who are, especially, you know, wannabe artists, right? Who mm-hmm. um, I've had clients who have literally put rulers up to their screen to see like if elements are exactly aligned. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's hard. I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's, I mean, there's a degree of, I mean, there's always a degree of education that needs to happen on the part of the client and explaining to them, you know, and I think if you really do have that kind of outcome first approach, you can use that outcome as the ultimate judge mm-hmm. on, you know, yay or nay on this new feature request. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. And I'll tell them, I tell them all this up front. I'll say we're, we're going to have design review meetings where you're going to want to move things around. And I'm going to tell you right now, you know, you're the paint store, you're the Montessori school. I am the expert web developer. That is a waste of time. And if time to market is important, and it always is then we would need to get to these goals as fast as possible, as mo- as robust and uh, maintainable as possible. We're going to crank this out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be awesome. It's going to reach all your goals. And once it's released, if you want to come back and mess around with the registration page, 
we can start a new project to mess around with the registra- registration page. Yep. It insulates you from those from that massive waste of time where you know the the CEO and his his or her spouse is like ah she doesn't like blue or he doesn't like this green or it's just like endless endless you know you turn into a pair of hands you, it's like that oatmeal cartoon where the guy <laughs> is the guy the dentist is talking into Matthew Inman like he's a mouse and they're just they're just trying to drive Photoshop through you you, you have to get away from that. What I would say is that the reason most of us, I think the reason a lot of people end up, you know, quote unquote, failing when it comes to fixed fee billing is that they're going into a project without changing the attitude they had as an employee, where they're thinking I'm an order taker. That is my job as a, as a consultant is to take orders or as a freelancer is probably more appropriate in this case is to take orders from people who, you know, they tell me what they want. I do them. That's what I'm used to. That's the way I've always worked. And until you really start to think, look, like you just said, you're a Montessori school. All you care about is enrollments. You just want more people to apply to your school. Leave it to me, the person who literally does this for a living to figure out the, you know, how we bridge that gap. You know, my goal is to build a bridge. Your goal is just to move people from, you know, one point to another. I know how to build bridges. Let me build that bridge. Yes. I think if we were to sum it all up, I think so much of it has to do with people just being unprepared and un really unknowledgeable about how to go about really coming up with a, a really good value-based fee that both is, you know, wildly profitable for them, but also wildly profitable ultimately the product for the client. And they go into things as an order taker. And they're rushing it and they, they want that thrill of a signed contract and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that big deposit check. Right. And then they, um, and then they start to stress out and pull out their hair, you know, when the client, when they get that call from the client saying, you know, Hey, we need to talk about your invoices. Yes. And that's the, that's the breaking point for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, my dreaded, my dreaded phone call. And I've gotten it plenty of times <laughs> yep. when I bill by the hour. Was we need to client- talk. Yeah. My client calls up. It was always the same thing. We've spent whatever it was. We've spent $100,000 with you and we've got nothing to show for it. You're over budget. You're past deadline. And and they're right. It doesn't work yet. <laughs> that never happens in the first week. It's always like once you're really, really deep in the weeds and a lot of money's been spent, they finally, you know, they're playing around with the the what you've done so far on the staging server. They're looking at their, you know, their bank account. And it's that kind of like, holy shit moment where, you know, and yeah, you sold them, you sold right. them bill of goods and they, you know, value is such a weird thing. Like if you ask someone what a given project is worth to them, they they can't come up with a number. But if you say to them, my price is $20,000, their, their gut instinct will, they will tell them if that's higher or lower than what it's worth to them. Right. And that's why anchoring is such a big deal where you can really anchor really the the projected value of a project off of real data so that then that thought doesn't happen right because right. otherwise they're like yeah 20 grand is is that the going rate for a website you know <laughs> is that but i saw on the side of the road the 300 dollars custom website banner thing when i was driving the other day why why are they wanting to charge me 20 grand yeah and, my um, my nephew has dreamweaver 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so if you if you have the conversation early on in the the initial before the project starts and you're having the you know people will call it a scope conversation, but to me it's really the value based conversation. It's the value conversation where you're on a, a hunt for why they want the project done. You will get down to you know because you you have to ask them to put in your proposal what are we going to measure to determine whether or not this project was a success. And along in that conversation, I'll say, what will this project look like for you guys? If this is a home run, what will that mean for you guys? How will we know that I just totally knocked it out of the park? And they'll describe some ideal state of being that this could potentially reach. And from that, I'm putting a thought in their minds about the potential of this project. And it's much, it's always much bigger than then when they came to me with this self-diagnosis and this like punch list of things they wanted me to crank out, <laughs> you know, that they, they, in their minds, you know, you, tell me how many times you've heard this one. We don't think it should be too hard. You should be able to just do these couple of things and it'll be, it should yep. be easy. Hey, Facebook has it, right? Why yeah, can't, why, and then, then you make my, my favorite rebuttal to that is, well, Facebook also employs about a thousand engineers, you know, good luck paying for that. Yeah. My response to it is if it's easy, you would have done it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Me. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right in that the like the number one thing that matters is ultimately, you know, whatever you build, whatever you do for your clients is ultimately a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And without knowledge of that end, then the means is up for debate, which ultimately leads to crazy amounts of scope creep and people never determining like, OK, this is the final product, right? Because you don't know. I mean, if, if you're selling a website, well, how do you define the the end state of a website? You don't. Right. Well, right. Because it's never done. It's like, it's like, uh, sometimes I liken software projects to a lake freezing. Like yeah. at some point it's frozen and you know, it's safe to go on it, but you never know exactly when it happened. That's right. You know, it's like the bugs slowly go away. And so let me, I have a question for you. If you don't, if we still have a couple minutes, go for it. Yeah. I'm sure there are designers listening that are thinking, you know, that's great for, you know, you, you know, code jockeys, your Ruby on Rails people or people that build APIs. But I can't measure the outcome of my beautiful, uh, you know, pixel perfect design work. That's just, it's immeasurable. Yep. Do you deal with that? What's your answer? To I do. That? And my answer is typically that ROI is not always financial. Let's say they're a department head and they have a budget that needs to be spent on, um, redesign or I mean, you know, something right like a new logo, new logos are always the big thing. You need to figure out exactly what is a win for your client. And and oftentimes it's a financial, uh, I spend this much on on Brennan, and I get this much back due to the increased sales or whatever else, but it, it's not always that cut and dry. So I usually ask people really dig into the dig into the client and really try to figure out what are they looking for? Like ultimately what, what, what lies behind that project request? Yeah. Like what, what ambition, what, what desire do they really have and sell them on that? And sometimes it could be, we just want to have a professional appearance or, you know, something like that. Right. Which sell them on that. I mean, don't, don't sell the, you know, the, the logo itself. I mean, yeah, you sell the logo still, but, but I mean, it is, I, I do want to say it's hard. It's harder. I think I like being able to I like that the way I work is very conducive to saying like, here are the sales you have now. I can come in and I can optimize things and hopefully we can get you to, the, to this revenue, you know, 
sure. increase. Yeah, so. it's an easy thing to measure. Right. I think in the field of UX, I think it's pretty easy to to yep increase increased whatever visitors to trials trials to, you know optimizing onboarding optimizing mm -hmm. work i mean ux is very conducive i think to yep. charging on value yep and and in fact ux is a, like i urge my designer friends who are looking to specialize and niche down to like go into ux because to me with the the device landscape and i could go into you know on and on and on about watches and tvs and cars and all that UX is creating a, a multi-device user experience is going to be a ripe area of growth for at least a decade. I'd also so, say copywriting too for designers. If a designer agreed. learns how to write convincing copy, I mean, they become much more valuable. Or even just becoming an awesome like typographer. Uh -huh. Yep. I mean, that's a great design skill. If you ask me, it's, it applies almost everywhere. But I, your logo thing, what would you do even if it's a subjective measurement, in my opinion, I would not take on that project unless I knew what the acceptance criteria was. And it, it, if it's going to be that uh, we need to please the CEO, he needs to sign off on it, then fine, as long as I know that. But I, I need to know before I engage in that project what the success criteria is, again, even if it's subjective. That may or may not help me determine the value or the price that I should set, but I need to know what what it's going to be oh absolutely i mean it's such a there's no objective this is the right logo that you can i mean that's impossible right so if it's an open-ended i mean what i've seen most designers do is something like i'll come up with five concepts and then you choose one and then we'll we'll have three revisions max or something like that but still i mean after those three revisions they could still be unhappy and that affects ultimately you right like that if you're not successful in that case right so the conversations that you that you're going to have like you're an expert you've done a million logo designs right you know that conversation that's going to happen three months from now when you deliver have it first yep you know i mean mike montero i don't know if you've read um design as a job i have yeah yeah wow i mean that it i, I would wreck i'm not a designer but i think that he's got it down well, it's, it's the whole expectation setting, right? I mean, it's really before you dive into things, really making it clear, like you said, how do we know when we have succeeded? Right. And, how, when, how, when do we stop? Right. Exactly. <laughs> because otherwise it could be, I mean, if the client looks at it as, wow, we get unlimited revisions, I'm just going <laughs> to keep, you know, they might not have, they might not intentionally be trying to be an asshole, but it can happen. No, I just, you know. I, I think in a lot of cases, I give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think probably they just never had the right conversations internally. Right. The CEO or somebody way up just like swung the mallet and everybody ran around like ants. You know, like, you know, for me in my, in my mobile world, it's like the CEO sees that the competitors have an app in the app store and they start screaming, you know, they run into the CIO's office and like, we need an app in the app store. And then they <laughs> run out. And that's the end of it. So then that funnels down to some buyer who contacts me and, you know, they have no answers to the questions I have to get answered. That's right. Yeah. So I have to push back up the chain all the way to the CEO sometimes and be like, why? What is the goal? Well, I think I think it's also crucial to understand that the person making the the hiring decision, the one who actually ultimately agrees to hire you, is not always the person who is financially liable for the um, for the upside, 
that could be produced, right? I mean, yes. the bigger the company, especially. I mean, granted, I intentionally sought out companies where the CEO would be my client because I liked, I, I, I didn't want to have like that kind of, first off, I hated committee driven anything. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to have a, I didn't want to deal with buy-in from a lot of people. Right. And on top of that, I always like to make sure that whatever I'm doing, whoever is ultimately affected by the results of it ends up seeing that, you know, my team and I are directly responsible for that. Yeah. I don't think I've ever done a software project where I was not in regular contact with the owner of the company and even, I mean, big companies, but still. Yeah. We've done a few fortune 500s where we never even, I mean, we didn't know who the owner was, but you know, in a lot of these too, we've, we've realized that some of these people who hired us in these bigger companies, they didn't care about the the financial ROI, they cared about how they looked internally, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you sell them, I mean, ultimately you sell them on that looking being good a, a good underpinning of it. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You want yeah. you want to help them get a raise, right? And that's, they have a budget that needs to be spent mm-hmm. and you you do something great. You help, you build something legitimately valuable, but ultimately you, you, you understand and you propose based off of, well, our goal is to help make, um, you know, find a way to kind of subtly inject mm-hmm. that. Yep. And it works. Yeah, I mean, when I work with big companies, I, I just don't do software projects with them. It's always like advice or training, consulting, retainer stuff. And then you're just, you're really just counseling the one person um, or the group of people that, you know, it's it's much easier to price. It's much easier. There's The risk is completely different than a software project. Right. It's, it's very easy to scope out, you know, going and doing a half day strategy talk. And, and there's really no need for deliverables. It's just, you know. Yeah, I'll be there at nine. <laughs> yeah, is the advice that comes out of it. I think, are we in agreement that value-based price or fixed pricing rather can be risky unless you mitigate the risk of assumptions and mitigate the risk of expectations not being set correctly? Yes. Another way to put it is it's, Setting value-based fees is not a thin veneer that you add on to your existing firm. It it involves a reinvention of the way you do business. That's a reinvention of how you pitch yourself, how you propose projects, how you, you know, I mean, it, everything changes. It needs to be, like I like to tell people, if you're going to change pricing, the product needs to change too. So the product being what it is you end up delivering. Yep. Yeah. You're taking on risk and you should be get you should be getting paid a premium for that. That's why they're called insurance premiums. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're exactly. accepting the risk for you. Yep. I know you do coaching and mentoring and I know that your customers or your clients rather uh, love a lot of the work you've done. And you've also written a lot recently on your new on your new website, the expensive problem website. Mm-hmm. Where should people go to find out more? Well, if uh, if double your freelancing listeners want um, to go to expensiveproblem.com slash DYF, I'll have a page up there where you can get a discount on uh, some of that stuff, uh, up to 500 bucks off the uh, my coaching offerings. If you want to learn more about how to position yourself, um, do your marketing proposals, maybe even make productized consulting offerings, and ultimately how to set value-based uh, fees. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see you there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thank you again for, for coming out, and I will talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jonathan. I love just getting perspectives that aren't mine on the podcast. 
I, I love just hearing from people who have different experiences, do different kinds of work. I mean, I loved you know bringing on Ed last week and talking to him about writing, which is something I've never, I've never been a freelance writer ever. That's the goal, and that's the goal with this podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, if you like the kind of interviews I'm bringing to you, if you would please go to doubleyourfreelancing.com slash podcast and leave a review either on iTunes or Stitcher. That just helps expose the podcast to more people, more freelancers who really are interested in, and want to learn about the business behind their craft. Again, I, I'd really appreciate that if you haven't done it yet. And with that said, I want to thank you again, and we will see you again next week for another exciting edition of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Music.